Hello and welcome to this bonus episode of God in Film. I'm educator and keyboard warrior Giles Goff. And I'm protest photographer Phil Coleman. And during this time of civil unrest, we felt we had to do something, however small, to help out with the Black Lives Matter cause. We believe that there are a few problems in the human experience that haven't been reflected on by artists, writers, musicians, and of course, filmmakers. And within some of these works of art contain answers to questions you haven't even thought of to ask yet. So today, we're switching up our format. Rather than looking at one film or one series of films, we'll be looking at ten films that helped us to understand the black experience. As you may have already worked out, Giles and I are two of the whitest white boys that ever did walk the face of the earth. So in order to be good allies, we wanted to share our platform with someone who can speak more authentically on the subject. With that in mind, I am pleased to introduce our guest co-host for this episode, Sefa Ahayaku. Sefa, why don't you tell us about yourself? Well, I guess the cat's out of the bag. I am black. and I'm from (gasps) Ghana. I am what you would call a third culture kid. So for those of you who don't know what that means, it means that I kind of sit between two cultures. I would say I'm Ghanaian and I'm British, and sometimes it's hard to say where one ends and the other one begins. My nicknames include Pineapple Head, The Woman with the Party Pants, and my personal favorite, Goddess. And I'm a dentist by day and musician and creative mastermind by night. Sefa, it is an absolute pleasure to have you on this podcast. I'm so excited for you to be here. I'm looking forward to this a lot. This may shock you, but where I'm from, North Wales, is not the most ethnically diverse place to grow up. Practically anyone who comes from south of Bala gets treated like a foreigner. So there have been plenty of occasions where I'm ashamed to say that Sefa has acted as my token black friend, answering any questions I might have. With that in mind, she's going to be helping us out with this particular episode. And in this episode alone, we will be asking, what is gentrification, code switching, and Afrofuturism? And if those interest you even a little bit, then please stick around. Whilst we make every effort to keep these episodes clean we strongly do not advise children or people with a sensitive disposition listen to this episode without further ado let's get into our first one our first film is 2018's sorry to bother you directed by first-time director boots riley if you imagine a hybrid of terry gilliam's weirdness and spike lee's provocation then you might just come close to sorry to bother you activist and musician boots riley makes a striking feature film debut with this crazy story of a black telemarketer whose career ascent puts him at odds with his friends on the picket line. And the story gets even weirder from there, mixing huge laughs with sharp racial observations. Lakeith Stanfield and Tessa Thompson lead the excellent cast on this one. If I can give you an idea, we see the protagonist, Cassius Green, played by Lakeith Stanfield, code switch to make himself sound more white in order to sell more at his telemarketing job. So some of you may be asking, what exactly is code switching? Well, it's been defined as what happens when people reflexively or subtly change the way they express themselves. So So I definitely switch a lot between lots Mm -hmm. of different things. So the people I work with often kind of like stop and down tools when my mum calls or when my fiancé calls because they think, oh my gosh, what is that sound (laughs) that you are making? (laughs) And I, I think it's really interesting because even within my different dialects, I will code switch depending on who I'm speaking to and who's in front of me but I learned how to do that so instinctively that when I meet a black person who speaks to me in a British accent I sometimes find it really disorientating because I I don't know what to do with that my brain finds Mm -hmm. it really hard to navigate that kind of situation. When I was working over in the States I was told that the one thing American people can't understand is Trevor McDonald. They can't get (laughs) their heads around a black man with a cut glass English accent. Mm. I thought that was fantastic. There's one other particular scene in Sorry to Bother You where we see Cassius Green at a lavish party being thrown by his boss. Now, at one point, he's asked, can you rap? He gets conveyed to the steps of the house, which start to serve as a makeshift stage, and people start urging him on, chanting him to rap. 
he comes up some faltering rhymes and he starts to lose his audience. So in a desperate foul swoop, he jumps straight into a call and response loop where essentially he just starts dropping N-bombs like there's no tomorrow. Now, as the academic and social activist Bell Hooks wrote in her book, We Real Cool, Black Men and Masculinity, she said, not only is hip hop packaged from mainstream consumption, many of its primary themes, the embrace of capitalism, the support of patriarchal violence, the conservative approach to gender roles, the call to liberal individualism, all reflect the ruling values of imperialist white supremacist capitalist patriarchy, albeit in blackface. Hook says, Much hip-hop culture is mainstream because it is just a black minstrel show, an imitator of dominated desire, not a re-articulation, not a radical alternative. So a black minstrel was where white performers would blacken their faces in order to perform musical or comic sketches, often portraying black people in a stereotypical fashion. Hook's argument is that most rappers are simply providing entertainment for a primarily white audience by perpetuating ideologies that have oppressed minorities for centuries. So I am going to be chatting about 12 Years a Slave. 12 Years a Slave is a biographical account of how a highly educated and cultured free black man from New York called Northup gets duped, kidnapped and sold into slavery by two white common. He's taken to Louisiana to work on the plantations, stripped of his identity and given the name Platt. During his time in the South, he works for three different slave owners, undergoes hardships, beatings and attempted lynching and is even forced to partake in the punishment of his fellow slaves. And after 12 years, he manages to get a letter to New York and is eventually freed by his local sheriff and gets returned to his family who have been broken hearted since he's vanished on a supposed business trip and there are an absolute ton of things to observe in this film the following things are the most important so firstly the film was set in 1841 which was only 179 years ago if that feels like ancient history to you please remember that the memory of lynchings jim crow laws slavery and human trafficking are still recent in the memories of most of the black community in so many ways that history hasn't been atoned for or laid to rest it is something that we still kind of wrestle with and forms part of our day-to-day culture. In the film we see slaves treated like property. Their actual identities, their gifts, their talents, their values have very little bearing on their natural lives and it's really clear to see that they are slaves before anything else. In many ways today black people are black before being anything else in the same way that slaves were slaves before being anything else and what we see in the film I think gives us the opportunity to challenge the them and us mentality which we all have in very different ways and the stark contrast between the slave owners and the slaves makes it really easy to see what the perpetuation of a themonous culture can do. One of the other interesting things is that the slaves have very little opportunity or ability to fight back even when they have white allies in the film. They're expected to shut up and put up and a lot of that still does happen today so I'm fortunately not beaten mercilessly by my boss um, at his every whim. <laughs> Depending on how your performance review goes. <laughs> I don't have a slave master, which is great. <laughs> but what I would say is that there are still situations where I'm expected to shut up and put up. It's kind of performance orientated. Their usefulness is based upon how good they are at being slaves. There's a particular scene where the slaves are drawn out in the middle of the night into the master's house and asked to dance for his personal amusement. And just watching it it's probably the one scene from the film that's stuck with you the most it's so absurd they kind of just have to shut up put up and do as they have been asked as a christian this kind of last thing that sticks out to me is kind of really poignant for me and we see kind of the bible being twisted and contorted 
to the benefit of the slave masters. It's an example of one of the many ways that the written word was used to oppress black people at the time. And a lot of those things became systemic and they made their ways into laws, some of which still exist today. Not every slave who was listening to what was happening would have known what they were listening to was a contortion of the truth. But the message was the same. The word was used to oppress the people, keep them subservient. So it's really important to kind of see that even though on the surface level, the Bible wasn't created as a tool for oppression, the heart of how it was contorted was and the same can be said for the law and I think that it's a really helpful thing for us to look at when we're looking at what does it look like to deconstruct racism. Some things may not look racist or racially influenced on the surface but if you dig deep enough sometimes you can find roots that are different things and I think some of the scenes where you see the Bible read kind of really highlight that really clearly. The sheer amount of cognitive dissonance to be able to sort of read God's word and then treat people like that was absolutely stunning, I think. Did they ever understand what they were reading? Just seeing almost how much some of these slave traders and people who worked in the slave trade enjoyed what they were doing. Mm. It's almost like they're looking at a toy or a piece of meat. Mm. That racism, it blends with uh, petty jealousies and insecurities mm -hmm. that come from the mistress or from the, the master of the house. And it all just sort of blends together to create this really sickening sense. In particular also, the way that a Solomon is being hung he's just left there for an extended period of time and people are just playing in the background oh, they, yeah. the way that violence was normalized is absolutely shocking shall we move on to our next film yes so um i watched black Klansman. came out in 2018 directed by spike lee this film is about taking the initiative ron stallworth attempts to change perceptions and truly uphold the law by infiltrating the ku klux klan and exposing their crimes whilst being sidelined and ridiculed by what appears to be a plethora of racist men and women in higher power positions than him it creates a disturbingly accurate narrative describing police racism whilst also painting a picture of how being complacent and passive in the face of hateful behaviour can grow an issue such as racism into a societal cancer. Adam Driver's character, although a white man, is Jewish. He's quoted as saying that he never thought about being Jewish before, he'd never really had Judaism as part of his life, as his day-to-day -day living. However, working as a part of the police team that are infiltrating the KKK, he's now openly denouncing his heritage to protect himself, and this cuts his soul deeply. He, as a white man, experiences the hatred black people and all other people of differing backgrounds to the white man have experienced for hundreds of years and is disgusted and scared by it. Adam Driver's character can turn away from this, but Ron Stallworth, as a black man, cannot. Hidden Figures came out a couple of years ago and it charts the story of Katherine Johnson, Dorothy Vaughan and Mary Jackson, three black women who worked at NASA in the all-black East Wing along with many other mathematicians during the 1960s space race. The story charts their contribution to Jen Glenn's launch into space from American soil. And within the film, each woman experiences a particular challenge for recognition and equality in the workplace. Catherine, to be allowed equal access to information, meetings and toilets as her wife peers. Dorothy, whose whole department is threatened by the introduction of IBM computers, which could make her and her team redundant. And Mary, who needs to petition the state for equal access to a white school in order to become a NASA engineer. The things that you can kind of pick up from this movie are the black women in this film behave with poise, intuition, assertiveness and grace in the face of racism and segregation, despite their objection to it. Much is the same today and I certainly feel the burden of behaving with poise in the face of racism and microaggressions. And I think the women in this film handle it really really well and for me I'm like oh 
actually, that's what I want to look like when I come up in, in the face of things of hatred and aggression. I want to be able it, to be classy. Is it that feeling like you've got to be on best behaviour effectively? 100%. We were taught that as kids, that wherever you go, you always need to be on your best behaviour, bring your A-game. And these women are very, very deliberately aware of that. And so is yeah. their community at large. I think one of the other things that kind of jumps out to me is that equality with whites is not the starting position. And as much as these women are able to get some level of equality through the film, that wasn't given to them. It wasn't something that was available to them right from the get-go. And again, mm -hmm. that was the truth then. And sadly, it is often the truth now. And that fact is sometimes something that we find really difficult to wrestle with because we would like to think that we all start on an equal playing field. But what's really clear in the movie is that these women don't and they have to scrap to get to what equality is. And they do it phenomenally. The women themselves are incredibly intelligent and their capacity is often overlooked because of their race at work and occasionally because of their gender at home. And I think the depictions of these women challenge the stereotypes that we often see in the media about what black women are, what they're like, how they behave, what their home lives are like. I just love the fact that they are so fiercely intelligent. I think that's really cool. Absolutely. Have you ever heard of, uh, of the writer Lorraine Hansberry? No, I have not. Uh, she wrote uh, <laughs> A Raisin in the Sun. Oh, is, uh, I have heard of that book. It's a brilliant play. Lorraine Hansberry said, obviously the most oppressed group of any oppressed group will be women who are twice oppressed. Mm. And I think that sort of links in with the kind of intersectional element of dealing with like racism and sexism at the same time, which frankly just sounds exhausting. Sticking with the 60s, Phil, do you want to tell us about your choice? So I had Selma from 2014 by Ava DuVernay. Selma tells the true story of how Martin Luther King and James Bevel of the SNCC led the Selma to Montgomery marches of 1965 to lift the Jim Crow laws that prevented black people from being able to easily register to vote. This was a pivotal moment in black American history and resulted in the passing of the 1965 Voted Rights Act, which allowed black citizens to register to vote. Although this is based on a moment in history, I believe this film is about the power of perseverance in the face of political adversity, especially when said politicians do not hold your plight as a matter of priority. It's a testament to Martin Luther King, who, through his practice of protest by way of non-violence and civil disobedience, fostered a resistance movement for the rights of all oppressed human beings, of which the effects are still felt strongly today. Whilst watching this film, I found myself learning more about how the common man can influence and change law and political stances through the power of protesting. Martin Luther King was not a fearless man by any means, and is depicted many times being very much moved by the threat he and his own faced physically, emotionally, and socially during this time. However, he is shown to be courageous. Courageous enough to stand up against the white men and women who saw his race to be inferior. Did you know with this film, they don't actually use any of Dr. King's actual speeches? Because Steven Spielberg owns the cinematic rights to Martin Luther King's speeches. That is a whole crack of nonsense. <laughs> I'm really sorry that... Uh... The thing that's always got me about Dr. King is that he was 26 when the Montgomery bus boycott started. And he was 37, 38 when he died. And yeah. I'm 37 now. That was always terrifying. It's even more terrifying now. So just what he managed to do in a short space of time has always, always impressed me. We will fast forward about 30 years to bring us into the 90s for Boys in the Hood. This is John Singleton's first film starring Cuba Gooding Jr. who delivers his breakout performance uh, of 
two African-American friends on either side of the divide. Gooding Jr.'s character Trey aspires to attend college, whilst his bestie, believe it or not, called Doughboy, played by Ice Cube, struggles with the allure towards gang culture and violence. It's non-judgmental and steadfastly objective in its tone, and this coming-of-age drama also features memorable performances from the likes of Lawrence Fishburne and Angela Bassett. The thing that always gets me is that John Singleton made this film straight out of film school. He was 23 when he made his first feature film, which frankly just makes the rest of us look like absolute slackers. I, I, uh, I need to pick up the bloody pace. <laughs> yeah, yeah, if you need to, need to get a wriggle on. So the things it means to me are two things. On a personal level, Lawrence Fishburne's character plays the father. He's a single father. He co-parents effectively with Trey's mother, played by Angela Bassett. And he is this fantastic example of really strong masculinity that is also sensitive at the same time. He's called Furious Styles, which... Frankly, Claire doesn't know it yet, but Furious is top of the list of boys' names that I'm currently considering. <laughs> furious, come in, PT. Take that scowl off your face. I'm not coming down, Dad. I'm furious. I'm playing computer games. <laughs> as far as I can see, he is one of the best role models I've seen of what it is to be a father. And one of the reasons that I think that is is because the way he uses his intelligence. There's one particular moment where he takes two boys, Ricky and Trey, out to a certain point in town. And he shows them this massive billboard which just says cash for your homes. And he asks them, do you know what this is? They're like, it's the billboard. But he says, look, I'm talking about its message, what it stands for. It's called gentrification. It's what happens when the property value of a certain area is brought down. You bring the property value down, they can buy the land at a lower price. Then they move all the people out, raise the property value and sell it at a profit. What we need to do is keep everything in our neighborhood, everything black, black owned with black money, just like the Jews, the Italians, the Mexicans and the Koreans do. The reason that was interesting for me was first of all, it taught me what gentrification was and secondly it began to introduce the idea of systemic racism that racism isn't just one person feels prejudice in their heart but that it can go into the upper echelons of a society and we have multiple things working together creating this process of black people being pushed further and further out into less desirable neighborhoods in america they've got redlining and it's all to do with systematic racism they put lines around a particular area and you'll find that they won't give mortgages, they won't give loans to people who live in those areas. And you will find that predominantly those areas are populated by black people or ethnic minorities. And even you could be a couple of streets away from somebody, but if you live in a redlined area, you are going to be disadvantaged. And that's just how it is. And these red lines have existed for a really long time and no one's thought to change that. That's insane. Have you heard about gerrymandering as well? Gerrymandering is this process where politicians are effectively able to redraw the lines of their district in such a way that it can include people who are predominantly from their base, the people who are likely to vote for them. If this was just moving a line over a few streets here or there, you could understand it. But it's done in such a way in some cases where it's done to exclude particular blocks or neighbourhoods that have a predominantly ethnic population. There's one example of the headphones district, where the district lines have been drawn in such a way where they actually start to resemble like a pair of headphones. It is absolutely insane. It sounds it's, it's like somewhat... um, rigging, vote fixing. Mm. It's like they're not even trying to hide it. They're not. You know I mean, they're just doing it. We're just going to be racist. Phil, do you want to talk to us about your next film? 
So I've got Kidulthood uh, from 2006, directed by Menhar Tudor. So this film for me is about how kids are willing to throw away their childhood in order to feel a sense of control over their lives. Every kid in this film is trying to prove something, whether it be that they're mature enough to have sex, that they can take drugs and handle it, or that they're tough enough to stand up to the people who threaten them with physical violence over things which are, sort of in the grand scheme of things, can be trivial in context. The things that I learned were the importances of perception and role models. Throughout the film, most of the adult characters are portrayed with problematic traits. Claire's mother appears to be rather passive with regards to her daughter sleeping with Sam Peel. Trife's uncle is a literal gangster dealing in guns and drugs in the London underworld, and Katie's father is seemingly more interested in the issues he faces at work than the fact that his daughter is visibly injured and upset after being bullied at school, the latter of which causes the inciting incident of Katie's suicide, which starts the main narrative. Whilst watching this, I wanted to scream at some of these adult characters, look what's plainly in front of you, to, to confront the issues that their children are facing when they're not at home. Although I appreciate that's not always easy for a parent to do, because sometimes the kid's embarrassed. They're not, they're not going to reveal all these problems, especially if it's to do with sex, or if it's to do with, like, drinking or something like that. I also wanted to bring attention to a scene in the film where Trife and his friends enter a clothes shop looking for hats. The security guard clearly doesn't like the look of the three teenagers with a different ethnic to his own coming into the shop, to the point where he accuses them of stealing, chases them down the street and has the manager call the police on them. It's extremely plain to see the blatant discrimination involved in this case and in this scene, and it's extremely frustrating to watch that abuse of power simply because this security guard didn't like the look of them. Sticking with the theme of teenagers, Seth, do you want to tell us about your film? Yeah, so I went to watch The Hate You Give with you, Giles. It was brilliant. It's about a black teenage girl called Star who lives in a very black community but goes to a very white privileged school in America. Despite her dad previously being in jail, her parents have worked really hard to make sure that her and her brother Seven have access to a great education. In the film, Star attends a block party, things go south, and a friend offers to give her a lift home. On the way, they are stopped by the police, and long story short, her friend is shot dead by the officer right in front of Star. The rest of the film is about how Star finds a voice, speaks up for the truth in the face of adversity, and refuses to be silenced or intimidated about the injustice that she witnessed. I think that the hate you give echoes a lot of what's happening with the say his name hashtag and the Black Lives Matter movement at the moment. The anger, the unrest, and the moral dilemmas which seem to keep cropping up. But I think the most important things that you'll get from the movie are this. First of all, there's a great example of the talk. The talk is real, and although its contents varies depending on where in the Western world you live, black families do have conversations about race, and it's inevitable and often detrimental impact on daily life. The black community that Star lives in is not shown as a homogenous group, and you've got people who are trying to do their best, and you've also got people who are trying to do anything and use any means to survive. Just like any white or other community anywhere else in the world. I think it's quite typical of lots of the places that lots of us live in in some ways. I really kind of want to hone in on those Star's experience of being the only black girl in her friendship group and in her kind of bit of the school, which is definitely something that mm. I relate to. Towards the end of the film, you see her having some outbursts and she loses some friends over race issues and what's happened with her friend's murder. And I think she represents really well how black women want to avoid playing the role of the angry black women, whereas sometimes they've actually got a really good reason reason to be the angry mm. black woman and I think that she reflects that stereotype really well. Interestingly enough some of her friends are also the picture of what white privilege looks like. Finally what happens with Khalil's murder trial I think is a little window into what institutional racism looks like and feels like and it does go part way to explaining why some in the black community are disillusioned and feel change is never going to come. There are lots of people in that court who have the opportunity to be allies and they fail to do that and 
that image is really stuck in your mind, especially right at the beginning of the trial. I love that film, and I could tell just from the trailer and the concept that you'd like it. It was a really hard watch for me. I loved it, but it was it was emotional. It was a it was a really emotional one for me to. The thing that still gets me is why, particularly with these black films, for want of a better phrase, is how much I have to hunt these films down. I had to sort of travel all the way over to to the world to see with this one. I had to go up to Bolton to see Black Klansman, and I had to go into the centre of town to see Sorry to Bother You. I don't know why we have to travel so far away, why these films aren't more are not getting more mainstream distribution. But uh, interestingly enough, reason... that night it was just you and me in the movie theatre. We had the whole the whole place was empty. It was just the two of us. And in an ideal world, every movie theatre would be empty. <laughs> it would be just you and me. <laughs> but it, the reason why I was on board with this film before I knew anything more than the title, the hate you give, the way it's presented on the posters, it's like a, an acronym, thug. But that actually originates from Tupac. He got a tattoo just around his rib cage, which said thug life. And what he did is he turned it into a backronym. So a backronym is when you take a word and then turn it into an acronym. So he said, the hate you give little infants Fs everybody. Yeah, and I that. the Tupac obviously deeply flawed character but it felt like this was an attempt to expand and illustrate that particular point because Star is very young in this film and it shows how that starts to resonate throughout society. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, my last one is Do the Right Thing, which is from provocative film director Spike Lee. And this is his second feature film and quite possibly his best achievement. Do the Right Thing is a profoundly ironic look at 24 hours of racial bigotry. The irony stems from the title. No one in the movie does the right thing. Not the African-Americans, Italian-Americans, Koreans or white Americans. Instead, the movie drops the audience into the middle of a broiling conflagration on one scorching new... New York Day, mixing provocative laughs with uncomfortable social commentary to leave audiences stunned. When I first watched this, I think I was far too young to really appreciate it because it is a complicated film that does not give you any answers in an easy format. And it reminds me a lot of Romeo and Juliet. And I know that sounds ridiculous, but a lot of the violence that kicks off with Romeo and Juliet is because of how hot it is. People are really hot. They're, they're getting quite riled up they want to take out their anger on someone and that's what we see in do the right thing do the right thing has this really anarchic vibe to it throughout most of it it only turns serious right at the end which sort of reminds me again of romeo and juliet how it starts up like a comedy premise and it's all fun and games until someone gets murdered and like i say the thing that jumped out at me for this one is nobody's perfect in this but you don't have to be perfect to deserve justice. Mm. When I watched this film recently, the thing that depressed me is it is 31 years old and it could have been made yesterday. And literally the only things that have changed are the names. We would talk about Trayvon Martin. They're talking about Howard Beach and it goes on and on like this. And that's what I found so frustrating is that things just don't seem to change. The last film we're going to talk about is a distinctly much more joyous affair. <laughs> Phil, do you want to give us a synopsis for this one. The last film we're talking about is Black Panther, directed Way. by Ryan Coogler in 
2018, Wakanda Forever. <laughs> so, it's an American superhero film, and it's based on the Marvel Comics character of the same name. It's the 18th film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. In Black Panther, Prince T'Challa is crowned King of Wakanda following his father's death, but he's challenged by Eric Killmonger, who plans to abandon the country's isolationist policies and begin a global revolution. It's the first superhero film to receive a Best Picture nomination, and the first MCU film to win an Academy Award, with wins in Best Costume Design, Best Original Score, and Best Production Design. When I watched Black Panther, it was the first time in my life that I voluntarily sat and watched the credits for a film by choice. I often do it with you guys because you make me, but this was the first time that I did it by choice, and I sat and I cried at how incredible it was to finally have a good black superhero and superhuman in mainstream media, and I never thought in my lifetime that I would see that, and I just loved the way it challenged so many stereotypes from across the board, so from clothing to culture to identity, humour, goodness versus badness, and even perceptions of the African continent itself because often Africa is portrayed as poor, starving, destitute and in needing of white saviours to help it and I loved the fact that Africa that I saw in Black Panther is the Africa that I experience when I go home. It resonated much more warmly to me than what I normally see on the silver screen which was great. So a couple of things that, I, that just blew me away. Firstly, the phenomenal depth of the characters. I'm so used to seeing two-dimensional black characters in film. Mm. There's not much thought put into who they are. They generally are cast in in my opinion sometimes as cast fillers or villains but I think Killmonger and T'Challa in particular are represented as whole people and I love that and I think in the terms of T'Challa in particular that is phenomenal in terms of young black boys who are looking for a role model on the screen mm. I think that the impact that that is going to have is going to be incredible then you kind of like look at the use of symbology fabric color language and just the aliveness and vibrancy of Africa that I love and we've got our royal family we've got our honour, we've got our traditions, we've got our culture and I'm like yes, like I'm all here for all of that and it's so refreshing <laughs> to see that held in high esteem because often when you see again in movies Africans looking about their culture, it's the poor African digging around in the dirt and I love seeing that being brought pride and centre place. And there's some music unapologetically black for all of it not just when the villains and the bad stuff starts happening and just completely love the soundtrack and then there is Everett's journey towards allyship so Everett kind of is a little bit suspicious of T'Challa and the Wakandan people he's a bit of an outsider and he goes on this journey to enlightenment and then allyship to a point where he's willing to let somebody who he doesn't know and doesn't understand be his eyes and ears and guide in the middle of a battlefield and that's the kind of journey that I would love to see our communities go on where we go hey you can't see this stuff and you don't understand that and that's okay let me be your eyes let me be your ears let me help you navigate this and I think that is just it's just such a beautiful representation and him in the middle of that fight is by far one of my favourite moments in the movie. Black Panther had the opportunity to just be an episode in a series that was kind of self-contained and didn't really connect particularly well with other things but one of the things I loved about Endgame was right at the end where the big battle's happening and you see T'Challa and the people of Wakanda fighting side by side with everybody else and I just think that's such a picture of equality and validity that not only were they like all right you guys can come along for the ride they were an integral part of the effort of the end of the end game for me to be able to then see those characters develop and to see how they fit in with the other people in the marvel universe that i just think is brilliant to see them have pride uh, of place on the screen 
absolutely. One of the things that you often see is there is a lack of black culture in science fiction. Mm -hmm. If they do turn up, then they are homogenized and they lose any of their own idiosyncratic elements to their culture. So Black Panther is a brilliant example of a movement called Afrofuturism. Afrofuturism can be summed up as an ability to celebrate African heritage without the burden of colonialism, Mm. but also to be able to imagine a future where society doesn't seek to limit them. Roy Wood Jr., the comedian, that said it was just nice to see a black movie that wasn't about slavery or slaying a dope. It was just Mm -hmm. a dope-ass movie. And I thought that was brilliant. <laughs> that summed it up nicely. That's a great review if I've ever heard one. I thought so. Yeah. That is our time today. We have had a fantastic time talking about this. And I really do appreciate you guys tuning in for this. Sefa, do you have any particular causes you'd like us to pay attention to? So there's currently a petition about changing the school curriculum to include all of British history and a decent chunk yes. of how British history intersects with black history. As somebody who lives in Liverpool, I'm very much aware of that. As somebody who lived from a place where slave ships left in Ghana to where I now live in Liverpool, that is something that's really important. And I think if we don't learn our history, we are doomed to repeat it. Unfortunately, there are people who think that it's a whole load of nonsense and poppycock, and I wish all those people get educated. Um, so let's sign that petition. Maybe they won't change, but their kids will have to learn about it in school, and that will be great. We'll make sure to give a, a link to that in, in the description. In the meantime, we will hopefully see you guys soon. Phil, have you had a good time? I always have a good time when I'm with you guys and it's always been brilliant to have a wonderful guest on as well so thank you Sefa for, for sharing your experiences and Sefa, talking you about are us. an absolute star and we're so happy to have you and please come back soon I will okay that's us done for now thanks very much guys bye bye Guardian Film is hosted and created by Giles Goff and Phil Coleman mixing by Phil editing by Giles our logo was designed by Julie Walsh and our theme tune was composed by Rick Lee waffle editing by Natalie Austin and our intern is George Allen Guardian Film is a production. Please rate and review, unless it's a one star, in which case write your complaints down in the form of rhyming couplets and memorise them before stepping into the ring with Phil in an underground rap battle. But please bring your own body bag as Kid Warrington will slay you with the illest rhymes and the sickest beats. You have been warned.